Hi, I'm Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Dave Farley. Based in Tring, northwest of London, Dave is a consulting software engineer, pioneer of the concept of continuous delivery, and a popular software development thought leader and speaker. Dave is perhaps best known as co-author of the Jolt award-winning book, Continuous Delivery, and more recently, Modern Software Engineering, as well as being the host of the incredibly popular YouTube channel, Continuous Delivery. You can follow him on Twitter at DaveFarley77, and check out his website at Continuous delivery.co.uk and read his blog at davefarley.net. Dave is the author of the LeanPub book, Continuous Delivery Pipelines, How to Build Better Software Faster. In the book, Dave helps readers understand how to build software using the Continuous Delivery Deployment Pipeline and the principles underlying the best state-of-the-art process out there to get from an idea to working software. In this interview, we're going to talk about Dave's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a best-selling author. So thank you very much, Dave, for being on the Front Matter podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about going way back to where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and technology. Yeah, sure. So, so uh, my first my first ever computer, I, I used a computer at school. And in those days, it was a dumb terminal connected to a mainframe in a university. This was kind of pre the birth of microcomputers and home computers. And, and I wasn't wildly impressed at that point. So I, I remember being impressed that one of my friends managed to make it say rude words whenever you logged in. But that, that was all. Um, later, um, I... Um, I was living with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife and has been for a long time. And her father worked in uh, a university and he came home with a computer for uh, over the summer holidays, which we borrowed. And it was just a ZX81, a little, little Z80-based microprocessor in a box with touch-sensitive key keyboard with 1K of RAM. Um, and... Uh, and I got interested. So my wife taught me to write my first program. And and then I got really interested and started writing games for it and learning Assembler and uh, all those sorts of things and then went on from there. Um, my first professional job was um, as a, a support engineer for a computer manufacturer, answering pro people's problems and trying to help them use the computers. And then I got a job in uh, in an R&D company for another computer manufacturer doing system software and all that kind of stuff and got interested in more distributed computing and bigger scale systems and, and ended up... Um, Building some interestingly complicated systems <laughs> during the course of my career, I was I was involved in a, a delightful project towards the end of my coding career, where I led a team that built one of, if not the world's highest performance financial exchange from scratch using the practices of continuous delivery, um, which was a remarkably fun experience, but also very challenging. Yeah, I'm I'm really interested in actually talking to you a little bit about the details about that. Um I was sort of not not in trading, but I'm a former for my sins, a former investment banker. So, you know, all right. Okay, cool. About, like thinking so, about So we, we were doing we were doing a really interesting thing. The company was called Elmax, still is called Elmax. Um and we were doing an interesting thing because um it it began as a spin-off from a sports betting company called Betfair. And Betfair were trying to do the same kind of thing for financial trading that um, they'd done for sports betting, which was kind of democratize it, giving you know, open access to the markets. And the, the vision for LMAX originally was that anybody could kind of turn up with ten dollars, ten pounds, whatever, whatever, and trade on an equal but on an equal basis with um, you know big institutional. Um, uh, uh, investment banks, um, and we we built a system for that. But that was an, what was interesting for technically for that was that it kind of combined two very difficult problems. Um, low latency trading is about doing very very efficient algorithms and sort of the narrowing down of performance and speed to hit the price in a market. Um, uh, you know, within microseconds um, and. That's a tough problem. That's not. That's a world class problem right there. Uh, but usually, in those sorts of exchanges, the number of players in an exchange like that is usually measured in the tens. 
You know, it's not thousands or millions of people, but we wanted to democratize it. So our vision was that one day, potentially millions of people might rock up and be tra trading in this. So we were also doing the internet scale thing. So we got these two horribly complicated um, issues of scale, you know, performance and scalability, and that they intersected, you know, where where the prices met. So we did some we did some fairly innovative things there, and we came up with some. Um, smart ways, if I may say so myself, of of doing a variety of things um, uh, to to, uh, to 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 get the the performance for, uh, out of that system. So it was really interesting. The other thing that was really interesting from my point of view was um, at the time I was I was in the midst of writing my first book, which was the continuous delivery book, and um, so I was I was hired as the head of engineering for that that company. And so, given the task of creating the team and setting the you know the direction that the, that we go in terms of development process, so we started practicing the continuous delivery approach to software development from day one with a blank sheet of paper in this incredibly challenging problem domain. Uh, and so, it was like a greenfield experiment in what's possible if you do continuous delivery with hard problems. Uh, so, I learned a huge amount from doing that. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'd like to uh, uh, talk to you more, more specifically about continuous delivery and 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 that. But um, uh, I wanted to sort of go into a little bit of the details about LMAX there because it's such a it is such a fascinating problem, and I love the fact that it it sort of its origin is in the 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 freedom that Brits have always had to bet. Um, yeah. uh, and and I've, I think I've, I've interviewed at least one or two people who became sort of like chief software architect types later on in their careers after working on these early on kind of Betfair type uh, companies, yeah, yes. because it was just like, you were sort of like, you could have come from anywhere in, 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 you know, IT, and suddenly you find yourself in these like hot houses, you know, yes. um, uh, you know, of, of growth and sort of thriving and, and ideas to try and take, take on these challenges. So just so people understand a little bit about how this kind of thing works, like, you've got to get there's there's sort of like people buying and there's people selling so there's bid and ask prices yeah there's got to be a single single price that people are kind of bidding on and and this is all happening like a thousand times a second with millions yes. of people um and faster so than, faster than that in our exchange so 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 wow. so, we, so so we we set ourselves the goal originally of turning it around in uh in a millisecond a thousand times a second and ended up outperforming that because one of the things that we learned was that that wasn't quite quite quick enough because you had bursts of performance so you so a thousand times a second was the slowest that we could go <laughs> so we had to cope wow. with bursts of performance that were faster than that we ended up um it, it was about um uh, for the technical any technical people it's, it's about 18 microseconds round trip from hitting the edge of their network going in performing a trade and giving an answer which is phenomenally fast at, you know, at, at that point in history. And um, was this the kind of thing that the rest of us would have read about, you know, in The Economist about how like, you know, trading trading outfits are sort of setting up their, their you know, outfit to be closer because there's like the limitations of the speed of light and stuff like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so so I, I did some, I did, I did some of that before, but, but absolutely. So, so, so we were, we were in, in the trade, they call them colos, co-located um, trading systems. So literally, as you say, to minimize the speed of light costs, people will put the, uh, the algorithms that are performing the trades in the same data center as the, uh, the 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 exchange, so that they're minimizing the, the travel through wires because that's that's going to slow slow things down. So it's 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 about it's an interesting problem because the way that you describe it is nice. So you're trying you're trying to you're trying to hit this price, and what what's happened? The, the reason for the performance I always found really interesting because it's a real business driver. For for those performance needs, um, so so what what th th there are organisations that are called market makers who place trades in exchanges, and the job of a market maker is to keep uh, uh, stocks liquid in in the exchange. In if in in essence, you know, there's there's usually somewhere that someone that you can buy off or sell to in the exchange and the market makers fulfill some of that purpose and market makers make money on the spread between the buy and the sell pass price so it's a bit like if you go to your if you go and buy money you know foreign currency you know uh, to go on holiday you spend uh, a bit you buy it for a bit higher price and you sell it for a bit lower price and, and there's a difference in the price 
cost. So market makers make money on the spread between the two prices. So what they're trying to do, and they're competing with one another, what they want to do is they want to have the narrowest spread so that they're most likely to get hit when somebody places a trade in the exchange um so what they're trying to do is they're trying to identify what's the what's the best price right now i'm going to put the best price right now and then a few milliseconds later i'm going to pull it and i'm going to replace it with with my new best guess at a price so what they need is this consistent latency the, the, the turnaround time of being able to place the place the price and get an answer back um and the trouble is is that time as it expands out goes wider and wider so the risk risk gets bigger and that means that the spread gets bigger so the way that they keep the spreads tight and win is by being very efficient and and, uh, and not going too far forward on the time horizon so uh, i don't know whether this is too technical but it always interested me that idea of the, the time cone uh, sort of expanding and trying to work within this, this this narrow time time window that's that's available for the trading it's interesting actually mentioning sort of like light cones and stuff like that you just reminded me of something that's that's very interesting so with the with the introduction of systems like this you know when when one thinks about stock trading you know sort of from the movies you might think of all the way back to sort of a guy in a top hat you know looking at a table on the in the newspaper or something like that and then you end up with humphrey bogart in the back of a limousine with a kind of teletype or whatever no not teletype but anyway you know some kind of like mobile mech early mobile mechanism but then with and then you know then you get the sort of like you know trading floor people yelling at each other and then you get the sort of late 90s after the web was introduced and there was sort of people could do trading like from their computers yeah. and things like that but when stuff like what you're describing got developed then things could start happening where you could start applying sort of scientific principles and i'm thinking specifically of a, a friend of mine who he did his doctorate in um atmospheric physics he was trying mm -hmm. to figure out how to get satellites to look through clouds better uh, when they're pointed yes. at the earth and he became a quant um and yes. for anyone listening a quant is a, someone who who sort of takes all of the, this these wonderful kind of fascinating kind of mechanisms like lmax you know built and then yeah. they so it's not a person it's not necessarily a person sort of typing in bids and asks or, or clicking buttons but it's actually kind of algorithms these really complex yeah. algorithms that are carrying out these trades yeah, I, 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 after LMAX, my last, my my last job as an employee before I started my consultancy, um, dealing with software engineering. But but I, I worked for a trading company that 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 was on the other side of the the fence. We were trading in exchanges. We were doing the market making thing that I just that that I just described. And quite a lot of the quants were scientists or mathematicians of different of different flavors. It's <laughs> if you'll give me forgive me being flippant, it's quite a good way to earn money if you're if you're if you have that kind of mind <laughs> being a quant. <laughs> no, no, definitely definitely, definitely. Um and uh, uh but 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 as uh, but as long but there needs to be a, the, the interesting thing I'm I the thing I'm very interested in about it is there has to be a system in place to which these scientific kind of principles can be applied. Yes. Um, and, and, and that's something that, that in many different ways, software brings to the things we do in the world in business and things like that. And this is something that you, you write and talk about quite a bit. And in, in particular, for example, continuous delivery is the, you know, the application of scientific and the way you define software engineering, I'm, I'm quoting yourself back at you here, but you know, I define software engineering as quote, the application of an empirical scientific approach to finding efficient solutions to practical problems in software. Um, yes. And what's fascinating about that is that the word software could be substituted in that sentence for, for lots of other different things. Um, and then you have yes. some other kind of engineering. Um, yes, absolutely. I, 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 and I, I've made this joke before, but but I, I but I started my career with with job titles like software and junior software engineer or something like this, and did nothing that was even vaguely like engineering. And then in the middle of my career, I worked at places that really didn't like calling what we do software engineering, and then. Now, after my experience building exchanges and doing trading systems and stuff like that, I think it absolutely is engineering. And when we apply engineering thinking, it really matters. It makes a huge difference to to the effectiveness of what we do. I am a I'm I'm a science hobbyist. I, I, I'm not. Uh, I, I I did I I did you know I, I did. O levels and A levels in science subjects, but but I, but I love science, and I you know I, I read about physics all the time and that sort of thing. And uh, you know, science is is just the best humanity's best problem solving technique. So if you're a software developer, a software engineer, 
and you're not interested in science, I think you're missing a big trick because our job is all about problem solving. And so absolutely, we should be applying scientific, you know, scientific ideas, you know, um, not deeply formal, not Six Sigma proofs of things, but, but, but certainly applying a science style approach to problem solving. And I think that's a pretty good description of engineering at all, you know, and practical use of scientific principles to, to solve problems. Um, and, um, and, and I would agree with you, you know, it's, it, it works better than other things. So, so I'm a human being, so I'm not naturally, I don't apply science all of the time when I'm choosing what I'm going to have for dinner or anything. But, but I, I think when you've got problems to solve and difficult problems, that's, that's how we do it. That's how human beings do the best job of solving problems. And so I'm quite passionate about that because uh, for for people that aren't familiar with software, strangely, an awful lot of software development isn't like that. It, it isn't practicing those. It's quite well, often based on guesses and hunches. Yeah, that's a that's a really fascinating thing that I'd actually like to go into a little bit deeper about um about the the, the fact that software development is actually very creative. Um, yes. A lot of a lot of people have the idea that like and and like a lot of people who are behind decisions that go in that ultimately end up in software being created also have a, a mistaken belief about what software development is and what programmers do. Um, yes. And but just just before we get to that, actually, sort of you brought up O levels and A levels um, for people for people not from the UK. These are sort of like things, you you know, sort of levels of education that you take um, yes. uh, at, at the at the end of your sort of public education. Um, and uh and there's a so there's something that's I'm curious to talk to you about because it's come up many times on this podcast in the past and from people from you know people from different generations you know if they if they started in the age when you sort of like you know had computers with one k of RAM um, you know yeah. how how you, how you learned things differs from when you're in like you know nowadays when there's just incredible amounts of of stuff available and I guess the question I have is if you I mean you've had such a such an interesting career but if if you were starting out now and you were 18 would you get a four-year computer science degree if you had the intention of going into a career in tech? I th I, 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 I think uh, I, you mentioned my YouTube channel earlier. I, I, I've done a few videos that are aimed at junior programmers entering the industry. Um, and I've thought about this quite a lot because, because I, as you say, when I started, it was very different. Um, and I, I, I think my my impression as an employer of junior developers in the past, and and you know you know observing it from a distance and talking to people, my my impression is that it's inc it's still incredibly difficult to get your first job. So there's there's a huge demand for computers for software developers. But what nearly all employers want is that they want experienced people who can kind of come in and do what they're already doing. I think that's a mistake. I think that's dumb on the part of the employers, but I think it's the way that it works. And so you, there's this big barrier to getting in. And then once, you, once you've got your first job, it's an awful lot easier then once you've got a little bit of experience to, to, to get subsequent jobs. And one of the barriers to, to getting in is to have a degree. Um, it, that makes it much easier to, to, you know, not much easier. It makes it easier. <laughs> uh, it's, it's still tough. Um, and so I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's enough. The, the, I, I, um, I don't think that mostly, of course, there are good schools and so on. I don't think mostly software engineering courses, computer science courses and so on, if I'm honest, are teaching the right things from a practical, pragmatic, professional developer point of view. You get, you get a young person coming straight out of university they're not ready to do professional software development. Now that's okay. That would be the same if you said, you know, a new surgeon coming out, or you know, they're going to need some support, and they're going to need some some on-the-job training and some and so on. That's okay. But often, in the past, I haven't seen a very big difference between people that have done a software degree, computer science, software engineering, that kind of stuff, and people that have done other technical degrees so i've hired people with uh you know chemistry or physics and actually they were usually better at the problem solving stuff which i think is the core of our discipline our discipline's rather strange and a little bit uh, partly be, be, because of being new i think i think it, you know we, we're still although we're 50 or 60 years old as a as, as a you know a career path 
we're still sort of finding our feet to some degree and i think that we um you know w one of the mistakes that we make is that we focus too much on on the um the tech the shiny things because that's one of the things that appeals to us as technologists and to all of us um and not enough on the problems that we solve and the value that we bring our job as software developers is not to write software that's the tool that we use to solve problems our job is to solve problems and i don't think that edu you know um, higher education in the round tends to teach that to software developers and i think that's a mistake i think that's they should be learning other things more more fundamental things so in some ways less complicated things but more valuable more durable things and i think that they tend to focus on some of the wrong stuff so so i don't think you're going to, by doing a, a computing degree of some kind i don't think you're going to learn all that you need to be a good software developer um but it's a useful tick in the box for getting that first job the my advice to anybody that is really interested in starting this career <clears throat> this is a career and it's i i still think I, I still believe it's a wonderful career it's hugely creative very challenging lovely problems to solve and it pays quite well it's 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 not a bad you know not a bad kind of thing to do for a living at all um and but i think that if you want to be good at it and why not why wouldn't you want to be good at it you've got to you've got to do a lot you've got to write a lot of code so so part of the game i think is playing with code just just do fun things just just write code and it doesn't matter what it is doesn't matter what you're doing just write code for fun i i spent i, I described the start my start and i spent i spent quite a lot of time just writing games for myself initially uh, and learning computer programming by writing games of various kinds. Then I got interested in computer graphics and doing some more sophisticated things with computer graphics. And I built ray tracers and 3D graphics engines and all of that, all on really crude ancient computers uh, by by today's uh, uh, terms. And for, you know from scratch. And I enjoyed that a huge amount. But I learned such a lot just by playing with the technology and learning it. Um, but my uh, my friend who I worked with at Almax, who was the, he was the CTO, I was the head of software development, and we used to um, we used to do all of the interviewing for the technical staff that were coming in together as the fi the final interview. Um, and our shorthand for what we were looking for in in a, in a good uh, this will date both of us a little bit, but but our, our shorthand was that we were looking for the people that when they first saw a video recorder they took it apart. You, you want you want that curiosity, uh, you know, to to, to 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 understand how things work and to play with them to figure out how they work. And I think that's a huge part of the what differentiates what I perceive as being the great great software developers that I've worked with versus the the, the more the, the more ordinary ones. Yeah, that's a really thank you very much for that really great answer. I mean, you know, the the idea that like you know the 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 sort of formal education can you know sort of help you get a foot in the door is is is, yeah. is, is just true. We all know that. Uh, but get your hands get your get your hands on it. Um, yeah. You know, take it apart, build it. Um, is is a really great way to sort of like learn the problem solving things, just sort of like you know directly. Uh, but you you mentioned a couple of uh, very important words there. Uh, one of which was agile, um, and the other one was um, you you used the word durable actually. And I had that this in my notes from an interview you did uh, for I think called your sub your sort of series called the Engineering Room uh, on YouTube yeah. with uh, Martin Fowler. And you, and you you had this line where you talked about durable ideas, and I was like looking forward in this interview to being able to ask you about that. And 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 so you you just now mentioned this 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 uh, idea that particularly when it comes to sort of software, we're sort of still at the beginning, even though we're 50 or 60 years on. Yeah. Um, and that reminded me, uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, Jerry Weinberg um, a, a couple of years ago uh, before before he passed away. Um, and he had this he had this really great story that I hope I don't mangle too much about being at IBM in the early days when it got into computing and being in a room with a bunch of executives who were just terribly disappointed by the idea that they'd have to have programmers um <laughs> and and that and that writing software was just going to be part of their business going forward they they sort of came into the notion that like it's kind of like you know we'll, we'll get the spec right we'll get the spec for this programming stuff 
and then yeah. we'll be done with that and we'll move on to our machines. Um, yeah. <laughs> and when they learned that that sort of programming was going to be something, they were disappointed. And this, like this, I just love that story because there's something about older management practices that just doesn't map onto the work that programming entails, right? So for example, my yeah. brother who's an English professor has a great joke that like, I'm just going to put my, my chin at my, my, my chin in my hand. But when you see someone doing that, they might be doing the hardest work you've ever seen anyone do in their life. Um, <laughs> but, but you can't see it. You can't yeah. see the work. And I've always thought that this is the, this, at least this, my, my, you know, sort of untutored opinion is that this is actually part of the problem. And so what the people want is like, they want to measure lines of code. Okay, at least I, I want to see a number for lines of code. I want to see people, I don't want, like, I want to take away Facebook. Or that's an old reference now, I suppose. But like, you know, take away, take away, uh, you know, um, hacker news from them. I want to take, at, at time, there were times when, when sort of people wanted to take away, like, basically the web from workers who were at computers because they didn't want them distracted. And it's kind of like, well, that person being on, like, you know, some Reddit thread, might be actually yeah. like contributing to a state of the art conversation about his about his job and or learning something state of the art from there. Yeah. So anyway, just with that Brand, sort of they're like, answering a deep question that otherwise they would spend weeks trying to solve by by doing it alone. It, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and and um sadly I don't I don't think that's necessarily gone away. I I I think that is a disconnect that's that still often exists and it takes different forms but um, but I I in my I, I spend most of my my career either making youtube videos writing books and those sort of things or consulting with with big companies to help them improve their software engineering and and i still see facets of that all of the time uh, I, I think i think you're right the, the, the soft, software is, is 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 interesting it's it, it's strangely difficult and and at the same time strangely approachable it's easy to get started, it's it's really easy to write your first program. I can I can show you how to write your first program in under five minutes, I and mean, it's it's simple. Uh, the trouble is, and 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 you can learn the basics in you know an hour or two easily. Just just to write simple programs, they're not going to do very much. You'll you'll need to learn an awful lot more. But it's kind of it's going to take you a lifetime to get really good at it, and. There are there are aspects of software development where you're a tiny step away from some seriously deeply complicated problems, uh, and the the the, the 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 two biggies are um, uh, concurrency and information sharing. So 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 concurrency is when you've got you know more than one thing going on at the same time, and we're just not very good at thinking like that, even though that's the way that the world works. So when a software, you know, the way that a programmer learns to write a program is that they issue an instruction and they wait for an answer back from, from something else in response to that instruction. That's quite a, when you stop and think about that, that's quite a weird thing. You and I are having a conversation, but while I'm talking and you're listening, your brain hasn't stopped. You're still thinking about all sorts of other things and they're all going on in parallel with me talking. Uh, that's the way that the world works. That's the way that the universe works, but not in software. When, when you first learn, you learn this kind of synchronous series of steps. You do this thing, then you do that thing, then you do this other thing, except that's not the way the world works. And as soon as you get into concurrency, you're exposed to all of this other complexity. You're doing this thing. Something else is going on over here. And depending on when you finish doing that thing or when it tries to talk to you, you're in a different state. So that's, that's complicated. That's hard to think about. And world-class concurrency experts um, say try to avoid doing concurrency because it's that hard. But it's really, really easy to do in software. And so everybody does it. And so they trip themselves up and write things that, you know, that are, that are complicated as a result. Then there's information. You know, you've got two pieces of information. You're two copies of information. And it doesn't matter what the nature of the technology. If you and I have got two pieces of paper with the same information on them, and we're both independently changing them. Which one's true? Which one's correct? How do we bring them together again and make them make them correct? Google Docs kind of makes this live. You can edit. You know, which would you prefer? Would you prefer to be you know doing an editing job with me, writing a book and and writing it on pieces of paper and exchanging piece of paper, or sharing it on the screen with Google Docs? Well, you can see what I'm typing while I'm typing it, and you can be typing somewhere else in the doc. 
that's a much more effective way of interacting that technology enables. But that's a, that's a, that's a visible you know showing of the problems of you know managing data in multiple places and com- and computers surface that in a way that's unusual and complicated and it's very 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 easy to tr- to step into that level of complexity which i i think is world class i think to do a good job of that at scale requires <laughs> deep thought <laughs> well there's, there's <laughs> to, to, no- be able to achieve it well, and there's another thing I want to, uh, to related to that. I think, which is that, like, um, you you talk about uh, somewhere I think on your website about how um, the most fulfilling lines of code you write are those that you first show someone what it can do, and they're mm-hmm. like, "Oh my god, what that's amazing!" And then you show them the code, and they're like, "That's it." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you no, know, but but this but this again, like, so when you've when you've mastered these problems and when you've built solutions to them, and then you show someone who's not a programmer and who's maybe an executive or something like that there's this just it's how do you how do you conceive of the value in in that you know what i mean and it's 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 yes. just it's such a and, and a it's it's, in, it's incredibly di- it's incredibly difficult and, and I, I you know i think i think that uh, our industry has been kind of polluted for want of a better word with 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 kind of production line ideas for years because because when we're talking about physical things the the production of physical things is a really difficult, complicated, hard problem. And so nearly everybody that doesn't write software thinks in those sorts of terms about it. So that so you know big organizations, they'll want to scale it up by adding more people and sort of divide it up into steps so that you you know each person's focused on one part of the problem. And that's almost disastrous. Uh, to, to 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 do that, there was some lovely piece of research that measured the productivity of teams, um, and they they just it was a metadata study. They divided the cohort into f- group teams with five people and fewer, and teams with twenty people and more. And then they just kind of counted how much code they wrote, just how many lines of code, how long it took them to get to 100,000 lines of code. You've already said it's a really rotten measure, but you know it's some, something you can do in a metadata study. And they did that, and the teams the, the teams of 20 people or more beat the, the, the teams of five people or fewer, as you might expect, to producing 100,000 lines of code, except... On average, for all of the teams, it took nine months, and the teams of 20 people or more beat the teams of five by one week over a nine-month period. So in effect, a team of five people is nearly but not quite four times as productive as a team of 20 people when writing code. That's just in terms of the amount of code. Then you look at the number of errors and mistakes in it, and the, 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 the teams of five people kill it. So what you want is that you want to organize software development into many small teams. And that's complicated. And that really hurts people's heads when they start thinking about it because they're used to production lines where you just have armies of people doing simple tasks. You want small teams of people doing complicated things, not many people doing simple things because that doesn't stack up in software development because it's a bit too complicated for that. And, you know, there's lots of counterintuitive things that, you know, it's, it's it's re- it's a reasonable assumption, but but in software we don't have a production problem because we can recreate any system that we make for free, so or, or close to it. So so that's not our problem. Our problem is only about design. So it's a bit like saying I want to paint the Mona Lisa. Um, so let's hire an army of people and tell them that we want the Mona Lisa, and they can each do a little piece. You know that's probably not going to work very well. I'm not saying the stuff that, that I've done or other people do is the Mona Lisa, but but just as an analogy, it's uh, you know you've got to. It's more complicated than it looks on the surface, I think, and we've taken quite a few missteps, which is really a lot. I think of my own work. That's a lot about of what it's about is trying to help people see the wood for the trees and focus on what really works. And I, I think we know what works. I, I think there's a great consensus in certainly the experts that I know in the industry. There's a huge degree of agreement about what works, um, it seems to me. Yeah, um, and actually, actually but, but, on that but it's, it's still rarely practiced. 
Yeah, that that actually maybe may, maybe this will be connected to something that I'm going to mention now. But um, uh, so it, it's interesting in the in the history of sort of you know software sort of development and IT and computers and stuff. There's there is a sort of thread of understanding that maybe older management practices and business practices that came from sort of physical production lines held back yeah. kind of software yes. development practices and techniques and stuff like that. But it appears we're now in it. And again, I say this just as a kind of, you know, headline reading observer of things, right? But we're maybe in a point where sort of like software development practices are now improving production line practices. And I don't, <sighs> and, and so for example, you, you, one example you brought up, I think a few times is um, Tesla managed to, in one of its factories, switch its uh, Model 3 production to sort of have like higher higher storage capacity but they did this in three hours like yes, they changed yes. and, 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 which, of, and which, was... which which also involved reconfiguring the factory to produce new you know the the different design of the car in three hours from the commit of a piece of software running through a bunch of tests having it deployed into the factory after three hours the the factory was was producing new cars you know, to the to the new design all the time while not losing the production of the old cars until it was ready to do the new ones. It's just phenomenal. I, I think you're right. I, I think I think that one of the things that there's this interesting dance from, from if you're a process nerd like me, there's it's there's this kind of interesting dance around the way in which we've we, we've evolved. So we started off, you know, it started off everybody ignored software development in the '60s and so on. They just it was you know, and and there was a lot of freedom for people to do you know, things, and there was not much management. Then people saw that software was getting important and and you know worth money is valuable, and so it started to apply some more management techniques, but took the misstep of trying to apply production line style thinking because that's what everybody's used to. Um, I think that you're right that if you look at the leading edge companies these days, it's kind of gone the other way. So, so software and the scale of software that we've been doing things has challenged conventional thinking in lots of different places, but certainly management thinking. Um, and, um, and and that's influenced the way um, the way that you know successful organisations are structured and and work and, and so on. The, the classic our mental model of the, you know the Silicon Valley industry was was kind of given birth by you know the the electronics companies in the 1950s and early 60s uh, um, and um, and they had a, a different way of going about it because they're doing some genuinely hard stuff and that's kind of continued i think i think spacex and tesla are fantastic visible examples of of that transition both spacex and um tesla are continuous delivery companies they they they, they apply the approach that the 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 I describe and recommend, um, but kind of across the way that their factory works, and that you know, I'm 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 a nerd and I'm busy watching SpaceX build their Starship to go to Mars at the moment, and you can kind of watch live cutting edge engineering on YouTube and get updates. You know, there's um, you know every week kind of thing on what's going on, and that's that's very very obviously based on the same kind of principles that i talk about when i'm talking about software engineering it's about being iterative and experimental and empirical and and you know gathering feedback and learning and evolving the systems and and then building systems that are modular and have loose coupling and good separation of concerns and they're changing the design of these massively complicated massively massive you know spacecraft um every single day all of the time it's in a complete continuous evolution and that's really at the heart of software and i think that software liberated that kind of thinking because software is so malleable but now it's going back and it's being applied in places that aren't so malleable but still to great effect yeah, that's that's a wonderful example. I mean, um, you know, for, uh, you know, um, the idea I think that, that that again that you've talked about a few times in sort of podcasts and stuff that I listened to preparing for this interview is the like SpaceX will update the software on a on a rocket forty five minutes before launch. Yeah, which from what I understand of the le as it were legacy space industry is insane. Uh, yes. and and you you have to have a process that is sort of self reinforcing in order to trust. That like it has to be built into the process 
that you can trust it so that you can do yes. this. And this is this is where like always and so this is and this is me sort of priming you to talk about continuous delivery, maybe to people who've never heard about it before. And as we've said, it's not just about software. It can be applied to manufacturing and rocket ships and cars and things like that as well. But the idea that you're always ready to deploy. Yeah, um, you're all, exactly. So, so it's, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's really, it, it's really uh, the, the way that I think of continuous delivery. So, 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 so my, my favorite way of describing it is working so that our software, our products in general, I suppose, but certainly our software is always in a releasable state. And what that is really is kind of this amalgamation of kind of, you know, the engineering and science stuff that we need to do to be able to build good products but brought together with sort of lean manufacturing thinking so we're trying to work in it as efficiently as we possibly can to take as much work out of the process as we can so we can work efficiently and one of the and one of the things that that demands of us is to not create waste by building bad products whatever they might may be so one of the sort of total quality you know thinking sort of ideas that we apply in that sense is this idea of working SaaS software is always releasable so we're going to make a small change and validate it very quickly very efficiently with high levels of automation throwing computers at that, that, that solving that problem um you know validate it very quickly to just check does it still do what I thought it was doing before? Does it do, you know, is, is the code that I wrote doing the things that I think it's doing? And give us that feedback very, very quickly. And that's where, you know, ultimately, you know, Tesla being able to make a change to a car and reconfigure the factory in three hours comes from, because it's all hugely automated. And, you, you know, you make a change and that change goes in and runs a bunch of tests to validate the change. And then it goes to, it runs another bunch of tests in simulation to validate that all of the pieces work together. And then it burns the silicon and then it, you know, it, it, it updates the, the factory or the car or whatever else it is that, that the software is for. And that's the kind, that, that's the kind of idea. So we're working in these very, very fast feedback loops and the our objective is to make progress in in tiny little changes and one of the i think that i, I think this is fair to say that surprised most people certainly surprised me one of the outcomes of working in these smaller steps is it sounds horribly risky making these changes really quickly actually it's safer because each of the set steps is simpler and less risky and if it does go wrong, it's easier to back it out, back out from the change and correct it. Um, it's it's like you know going back to SpaceX building their rockets. You know the system's modular, so if 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 they don't like something, they can kind of take it off and they'll they'll reconfigure the rocket, the, you know, this version of the rocket and change it, and then update what's going to come in future versions and all of those kinds of ideas. So being able to work quickly in these smaller steps is increasingly being seen as the, 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 the safer approach. I've worked with companies building medical devices that can hurt people if they go wrong. And we've been starting to apply this kind of idea to building those sorts of devices, as well as sort of more run of the rules, you know, finance systems or what, you know, finance systems are high consequence systems, but the consequences are only money, not people's lives or health kind of thing. So. So, so I, I, I think it's interesting the way in which, as you say, software ideas from software are to some extent feeding into society and changing the way that we think about the way stuff works. A bit like the, the way that lean manufacturing did, you know, uh, and revolutionised manufacturing. I think the same things going on to some degree in other, you know, the, the more creative parts of engineering as well. There. Yeah, and to, it's, it's interesting to get into the the sort of like the, the sort of like gritty detail of what we're what we're talking about here. So, um, a lot of a lot of people who do sort of programming might be familiar with the idea of um uh, going off on a on a branch if you're building a new yes. feature, right? And and this I, I gather comes kind of more or less modern iteration of this might come from sort of open source software development, right? Where you've got yes. lots of people working on a project, and you sort of you've got the sort of main trunk as it were of code and then people make a branch off of it i mean this sort of crude image but you know they and then so basically what they do is they take it and then they start adding or modifying something to add a new feature and then when they're done they submit their changes for review and those go back into the main yes if they're accepted they go into the main sort of code base but yes with continuous delivery it doesn't it doesn't work that way right you you're you're actually always working on the main branch yes 
so so, so it's, it's it's about visibility of changes so um and that promotes this small batch size idea as well which, which we've been talking about but 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 primarily it's about the visibility of changes this kind of comes continuous delivery is sort of the um the offspring of a practice called continuous integration which was you know, made well known in the in, in the late 90s and the idea of continuous integration was you know if you're in a, t a team of people writing software and and one of the other aspects of software that's tricky for people that don't do it um when we were talking earlier about some of the tricky aspects is it how fragile it is it's intensely fragile much more fragile than you know than words in a regular book for example so there's a, there's lots of analogies that you could make with writing you know for writing software it, you know it needs to communicate ideas it's you know there you know there are people with good you know good style and poor style and all of those kinds of things but one of the difference, differences is it also has to execute it. It has to be readable by human beings, which is very, very important. It also has to be able to actually work, you know, tell the computers what to do in a way that gets some outcome that we're interested in. So it has to work, and a simple, tiny error can cause your spaceship to blow up. That famously happened with Ariane 5. <laughs> so um, as a result of a software defect. So it's very, it's very fragile. And, and so it's very easy if you and I are both working on software, remember the thing about two versions of the information in different places, for us to, 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 to make a mistake that's subtle. And we, we, when we bring our changes together, we, we miss it if, if, if we're bringing lots of changes together at once. And one of the ways to alleviate that is to just get vi better visibility. Like we were talking about working in Google. Wouldn't it be great if when I made a change to my software, you saw it almost immediately and could understand the impact on, you, on the work that you're doing of the stuff that I'm doing that, that would give us a better feedback cycle and that's kind of the idea behind continuous integration we're going to organize our work so that we can get as close to, to, as possible to that and by definition what continuous integration says is if we're not all looking at everybody else's software we're not bringing it all together and continuously integrating it together to check that it all works at least once a day it's not continuous integration. So that's kind of the starting point. And then um, branching, as you said, the most popular form of branching these days is something called feature branching. And what it's what still what most teams do, I would, I would guess. Um, and the way that people organize work on software development teams is that somebody says, here's a chunk of work for somebody to do. The, the people pick up the, the chunk of work, they go away and work on it on a branch for that feature. And when they think that feature's finished, they'll then integrate it with all of the rest of the software to see if it works. So now you've got a bigger chunk of software that might have broken something on day one, but took three weeks to write. And you've got to un unpick that. And meanwhile, I've got another big chunk of software which made some different assumptions about the shared code. We're trying to bring them together and they don't, they don't fit together. And it, it adds quite a lot of work doing that potentially. Um, but it was designed for open source software. And it's fantastic for that. The feature branching idea with pull requests and all that is fantastic for, for that way of working. But if you're working on a team together, it's not quite so good. It's not. It brings in a lot of inefficiencies. So continuous integration is this idea of eliminating some of those inefficiencies, so we can work much more quickly, much more closely together um, by evaluating, understand, make, working in smaller steps and understanding the impact of our small steps by integrating the software together all of the time. Continuous delivery says we're working so our software is always releasable, and so that means that if we're working using continuous integration which it's hard to do continuous delivery you can't do continuous delivery without continuous integration really um and if you're doing that then that means that after every tiny commit that might not yet add up to a whole feature i've got to be willing for that to go into production um so that's a big challenge. It changes the way that we think about work. It means that we work much more incrementally and to some degree more defensively. But it brings so many benefits that it's worth some of those costs. Um, and there's data that backs this up. So the data says that if you practice 
continuous delivery and continuous integration in the way that I described, then you produce higher quality software more quickly um, compared to doing the feature branching thing. Now, there's lots of people that do feature branching in lots of different teams and they don't like that answer very much. But that's what the you know the closest that we've got to a scientific study of software development says it says it says that this approach is more efficient and it does produce high quality software for, as far as i can see as well as what the data says yeah it's really interesting you say that it, it does seem it does seem sort of counterintuitive when you first introduced the idea that like we should make, yes. be making all these changes all the time and and we should be doing little experiments and popping things out and popping things in and seeing and seeing what yeah. happens you know that seems risky and dangerous but if you've got and you said you said sort of taking as much of the work out of it as you can i think if you've got yes. built-in automated processes that make it safe to do that like that basically will fall like basically i think the term you use in, in your in your uh handbook on leanpub the falsification if you've got falsification yes. mechanisms in then you can run your you can try these experiments safely um yes. without knowing knowing that they won't break anything uh yes absolutely yeah. so, so so one one time we decided at Elmax with our system we were we were running a little under a hundred thousand tests every hour um, uh, for, on our system. So, so a commit. If we committed any change to our system within an hour, we'd get an answer: is it releasable or not? With about hundred, a bit less than hundred thousand, but in that kind of ballpark. Um, and and so. One day we decided we didn't like the commercial terms that we had with a relational database vendor. So we went and looked up for one of the open source ones. We pulled down that, that relational database. We installed it in the software. We automated it in the way that we would. We put it through our deployment pipeline, which is the mechanism that runs all of our tests and tells us whether it's releasable or not, which is what my LeanPub book is about. Um, and we got an answer saying that there were some bugs. So we fixed the bugs. We put it through the pipeline again. All the tests passed. The next time we went into production, we went into production with that change. I've seen places that couldn't do that in six months with a team of people. It took us four hours. We did it in the morning, the whole story that I've just told you. And that's the kind of change that this can make. And it requires a lot. It, it requires lots of changes of the way that you think about and approach software development to achieve that. But the benefits are enormous. We were in production. You said about this this confidence that you get with the validation. We were in production for 13 months and five days with thousands of users before a single user noticed a, a problem in production. I, I've never worked on software like that before. Um, and I'm sure that people don't believe me when I say that, but I, but I promise it's true. We found defects in production, but they were so subtle that nobody else was seeing them. We, we noticed them before other people because of the, 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 you know, the quality of our testing and the extent, extensivity of our testing. So we could, we could make changes with a huge degree of confidence that we could make changes and, uh, and it would be safe. And this, this system was dealing with literally billions of pounds worth of other people's money. <clears throat> And um, and as you mentioned, uh, for anyone interested in sort of getting into the details of building one of these amazing uh, uh, pipelines, um, you can you can check out check out the book on on LeanPub. So it sort of talks about the the tools and and things that you can choose and things like that, but really gets into the principles behind it. So that if you want to be able to achieve this achieve this amazing thing, uh, but but just on the subject of books, you mentioned an interesting. There's there's all kinds of analogies between the writing that a programmer does and the writing that a book author does. My favorite one is to explain to book authors what programming writing is like is imagine if you had one typo in your book and so no one could open it um yes. uh, you know mm -hmm. like that and so you get you know you know you know sort of like how you how you work on that type of writing might be very different from how you work on book writing but book writing also is something you know one one takes very seriously um and so you got into book writing uh around the sort of I you said I think it was when you were at thoughtworks um yes. uh, and and then you wrote this book, Continuous Delivery. And I'm just sort of curious about that, just shifting to the next part of the interview interview where we talk about your work as a as a writer and a content producer. Um, were you, had you been a writer before that? No, not really. I I, I I I did I did the kind of writing for work that that you know most people in my kind of profession do, sort of writing you know, specifications or reports or you know bids for work or you know you know, design documents, those sorts of things. Um, but I, I wasn't really, I'm an avid reader, but I wasn't a writer. Um, and 
Um, I, 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 I'd written a few, a few small articles for, you know, computing magazines and uh, as they were then, and, 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 you know, a few online places. Uh, this, this was kind of the, the early, early, early to mid, the early 2000s, around 2004, five ish. At this point, and we come up with this really cool way of doing things on our projects at ThoughtWorks, and I was leading one one of the bigger projects um, at the time, which is where some of the ideas for continuous delivery were, were born. And so there was a bunch of us that were kind of mining these different ideas, and we said we should get together and we should all you know. Write, you know, write a chapter each or something like that. And so um, my co-author on that book, Jess Humboldt, and I sat down and started writing. And we were looking around, where's everybody else? <laughs> and nobody else wrote anything. And we, we kept chasing them for a little while. And then we gave up and said, let's let us do it and we'll forget the others. And so just kind of progressed from there. Um, and it was hard work. Writing a book is hugely hard work, but I... I do, I do love it in a way. I, I love the way that writing focuses my mind and makes me understand things better. Because in trying to explain it, an idea to somebody else, I think you learn it more deeply. You understand it more deeply in trying to 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 to, to, to do that. And and that's the, I I don't write fiction. I I, I write technical books. Um, and um, but but and so I think it's true of that kind of writing, and I I do I really enjoy the process. I, I just like sitting down and and typing and just trying to organise my thoughts that way. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned enjoying it. Um, uh, that's one thing people often say about about um certain types of work is that um you in order to do it well, you really have to you really have to enjoy it. It's sort of as an activity in itself, and it's it's sort of interesting. I mean, you yeah. mentioned you know you started the book in the sort of mid two thousands, but it came out in two thousand and ten. Um, yeah. so that was many many years that you're working, uh, and and yes. with no with no sort of like you know audience you know, or anything like that, other than maybe editors yes. or, 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 you know, sort of people you got to sort of read it, read it along the way. So it is something that you really have yes. to have to do enjoy in itself. Uh, and so when it came out, it became this great big bestseller. Was that a surprise? Yes, it, it was. It was a very big surprise. So, so I can remember, I can remember sitting in a pub with Jez, you know, a couple of times and it's just talking about, oh, I wonder if anybody will buy it at all. Will anybody get this? You know, well, because <laughs> we think it's good, but yeah, but you know, it's a bit nerdy. This book, it's a, it was an unusual book. I think it, it's still an unusual book because it's it, it, it's 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 not a you know learn how to do this programming language or learn how to use this framework or it's not that kind of a book. It's it's kind of it's quite quite wide in its territory in, in terms of the scope that it covers of software development because it's really about pretty much all of software development is, is really the way that I think of continuous delivery. You've got to optimise this whole process. Um, and so it's an unusual book, I think, or it was, certainly was then. Um, and so we were a bit nervous about it. I, and at one point I remember in a conversation and Jess said, I'll deem it a success if I'm able to buy a new shed from the proceeds. <laughs> so so, so we, had, we had relatively low ambitions at that point. But, uh, but, but it, was, it was a big success. My, my publishers told me last year uh, uh, or something it was voted in the top 25 best software books of all time <clears throat> that's amazing which was astonishing <laughs> it's unbelievable so, so i'm delighted that it's been such a big success and it's it's had a big impact on my life and my career since as a result of that I'm um, speaking of delightful successes. I see, I see a silver, silver plaque um, there ah. behind you, um, uh, with a little, the sort of little YouTube play button on it, um, which, uh, yes. which I gather you, you get if you get over, above a certain number of subscribers on YouTube or some measure of engagement or, or something like that. So congratulations! Yes, it's, on it's, that. it's 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 uh, it's it's uh, it's a plaque for a hundred thousand subscribers. And yeah, could you? So, could you... I, so, so th th that was that was another accident, really. So at the start of the pandemic. Um, I was at that time, my life was traveling all over the world and working for companies. So my carbon footprint was horrendous. My, I was spending large parts of the year living in hotels and uh, doing work uh, place. And, and, um, and the pandemic came and that all stopped. 
and my business which was you know based on me doing that sort of stuff kind of ground to a halt for a moment so uh, and and my son was made redundant from his work and he was in marketing uh, he was doing digital marketing so we kind of we were bemoaning this you know the, the, i think it was the week after the pandemic started and said and i said oh, i always kind of fancy just trying to do some youtube stuff and uh and he said oh yeah well, 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 why don't we give that a go so we started up my wife my son and i started up this we called it continuous delivery online we had a business called continuous delivery limited we still do but we called we internally we called it cd online and we started doing youtube videos and we released one a week and i'm very proud that two and a bit years later two and over two and a half years later we haven't missed a week yet we, we've launched at least one video every week wednesdays at seven o'clock uk time um and we started off and we were doing well for, for most youtube channels don't get more than 100 subscribers you know it's yeah and and in our first year uh a bit less than a first year we, we were coming up to nearly two thousand subscribers and we were all we were all having bets between us of whether um whether we'd hit two thousand by the new year or not and then the cyberpunk video came out and i did a, a critique of the the software engineering in the cyberpunk team um uh, and that went crazy we, we got half a million views on that video and that kind of catapulted us up to the next level so we we, we sailed past uh, twenty thousand subscribers mark and and got to two thousand and and we kept going from there so so we're about uh we're just approaching we're a few weeks off probably 140,000 subscribers now um and it just keeps growing and and it's been remarkable and it's opened all sorts of doors doing all sorts of interesting things so now we're adding more content to the channel so we do the weekly stuff but we're doing smaller things more frequently and as you mentioned we do the engineering room series so we're trying to build out this channel about software engineering and talking about it and we, we we kind of sell training courses that kind of reinforce the stuff so it's kind of taken a lot of my work online i do i do i still do consultancy uh, but my time is kind of a bit more precious because i'm doing a bunch of other things and so we've got we are making a living from youtube so <laughs> at my my stage of life at my point in a career it feels rather weird to think of myself as a youtuber but but i am these days and that's probably uh, it's it's starting to overtake my book as as what i'm i'm best known for i think yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Um, I, I was sort of like watching some of your videos, including your latest one on end-to-end -end testing, and I, I love the the sort of self presentation of it as like opinionated opinionated videos about things. So you set it up that way that like I'm yeah. going to take a position on something, uh, and yes. and I, the thing I love what is it's so dip, so so diplomatic, right? It's like it's saying like this isn't this isn't me kind of like this is coming from my perspective and i'm going to give you an opinion on it and you know yeah um it's not the same thing as i'm saying everyone else is is wrong or something like that i'm but uh, i'm opinionated and and yeah. it's uh it's this great mixture of um because uh, they're they're like i guess it's interesting because like you they're, they're, pre they're they're presented as fun but it's if you just read the words you'd be it would be like a like a sort of sophisticated essay on something if you know what i mean right like and it's got this great combination of those two things so it's kind of like uh, easy easy to easy to sort of get into it and then you sort of realize oh this is actually a very serious topic that's being talked about at a very high level and then you learn you learn a great deal from them but at the same time there's sort of like a fun graphic like look at this you know and it, it's it's just it's just great and sort of you know and congratulations to your your son and your wife as well for this great collaborative project because it i mean it, it's really, it's, really uh, it's been a, it's been a huge amount of fun but thank you very much for saying that i, I i'm delighted that you that you think that i i've started to think of what it is that i'm doing is is rather like the the the, the, the popularizers of science people like brian cox or, or david attenborough I, I i'm not putting myself in the same territory as them of course but but in trying to talk about complicated ideas but in an easy to understand way is is you know is what i'm trying to achieve with what am i doing in, in my little niche um and and i love it and and i i i do i do really enjoy it um uh, and i i get such fantastic feedback from 
from people in in in, in our social media communities now um in saying things like i tried i tried this idea that you talked about and it worked it worked i got these results this this is what happened so it's just so rewarding and you know you get the you get some trolling and you get you know get some 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 bad stuff it's the internet but but hugely massively overwhelmingly the feedback that i get is positive um and it's just so rewarding if if you know if i can have if i can help help some people just do a bit better job of software that's a lovely job satisfaction for you you know for me that makes that's, that makes me feel feel good and so so we put a lot of, we put a lot of content out but one of the other things that's interesting we were, talk, we were talking about writing earlier is i didn't really i didn't start off thinking like this but it's writing you know so so the stuff that you're talking about is you know is writing so i'm writing to a deadline every week i'm writing i'm writing you know a, a new a new video on a new topic every week and doing a bit of research and so on trying to trying to get some forms of words that are that are nice and and, and concise and clear the ideas and then and then designing graphics and you know how we're going to how, how we're going to you know support the picture and that's true you know so i'm doing a lot of writing even though i I haven't got a book project on the go at the moment um uh just in the interest of time um the uh the very last question that i that i say for the end of of every uh, episode if the guest is 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 actually has actually written something on leanpub um is um and I, I checked, and I saw that you you wrote you and and your wife wrote the book um uh, in uh, in our browser writing mode. Um, but the yeah. last question I always have is um, if there was one magical feature we could build for you, or if there was one terrible thing that had you shaking your fist at Leanpub every time you went on there that we could fix for you, uh, can you think of anything that you would ask us to do? On the whole, my, uh, our experience with Leanpub was wonderful, and the next book I'm writing is going to be another Leanpub book, which will be starting probably in the towards the end of this year or in the new year. Um, I, I think Lean Pub is fantastic. And for, for many of the reasons that, that, that you you, know, you mentioned before, when we were talking about traditional publishing, feedback loops and being able to try right. ideas and get people and you know share your ideas with, with other people. It's a fantastic system. The one thing that I wish that you had that, that would make life easier um, is um, a better... Um, um the markup validator <laughs> so so that you you know you you could do you could do more interactive editing or you could do translating you could check it more i, I might even, if i can find the time i might even write one because i th- i think that would be a that would be a, a nice addition and i know there are there are, there are a few that I, I looked at while we were writing our book but not, none of them kind of worked in 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 our writing mode uh, we found a bit, we we kind of tried some different things, but we did a lot of writing, as you say, in the f- relatively basic tools. But I think the Lean Pub experience is a wonderful one, and I, I I really do, I really do value it. It's been fantastic experience uh, uh, with the Continuous Delivery Pipelines book. Oh well, thanks very much for that, and and uh, for the kind words, and thanks for that feedback as well. That is something that you're probably not surprised to hear. We've had we've had other people have mentioned before. I mean, basically, basically just to not just to say it very briefly, if you're writing a LeanPub book, I mean, you you can use LeanPub by just uploading books you write using you create using your own tools. But if you write a book using one of our our writing modes, you write in plain text, basically a sort of markdown for books, you know, yeah. that, that we call Markua. And but what that means is that, and currently the only way to kind of see what it's going to look like is to do the whole click the button to create a preview and build the whole thing. Um, so yeah. you might have you might have tried some new little sort of, you know, Markua kind of thing, like, oh, inserting an image. You don't know if it's going to work until you click the button and create the whole book. So and so that the whole ebook file. So that is that is something that we've been asked for before and something that I'm I'm quite confident we'll get to one day. Um, well, Dave, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your evening to be on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. And thanks very much for uh, being a LeanPub author as well as all your other work. Uh, it's, 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 it's my pleasure and uh, some really f- interesting questions. Thank you for a very interesting conversation. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.